1: Hello, you are listening to New Books in American Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jackson Reinhardt, and today I'm with Ahmed White to talk about his new book, Under the Iron Heel The Wobblies and the Capitalist War on Radical Workers, published by University of California Press, 2022. In 1917, the Industrial Workers of the World was rapidly gaining strength and members. Within a decade, this radical union was effectively destroyed, the victim of the most remarkable campaign of legal repression and vigilantism in American history. Founded in 1905, the industrial workers of the world offered to the millions of workers aggrieved by industrial capitalism the promise of a better world. Its growth, coinciding with World War I and the Russian Revolution, and driven by uncompromising militancy, was seen by powerful capitalists and governmental officials as an existential threat that had to be eliminated. Under the Iron Heel documents the torrent of legal persecution and extralegal violence that shattered the IWW. This book reveals the remarkable courage of those who face this campaign, lays bare the origins of the profoundly unequal and conflicted nation we know today, and uncovers the disturbing truths about the law, political repression, and the limits of free speech and association in class society. Ahmed White teaches labor and criminal law at the University of Colorado Boulder, and is author of The Last Great Strike, Little Steel, The CIO, and the Struggle for Labor Rights in New Deal America. Ahmed, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today.
2: Thank you. I'm, I'm very happy to be here.
1: Fantastic. Well, before we get into the content of the book, can you tell me a little bit about your academic background and what led to the writing and publication of Under the Iron Heel?
2: Sure, I've uh, been a law professor for about twenty-four years, and spent um, maybe the first third of that period uh, pursuing conventional topics for law professors in a pretty, in a fairly conventional way. I always had a, a, a leftist cast to what I did, but the topics I chose were pretty, uh, were were pretty unremarkable. Uh, I was a a criminal law scholar, more or less, with um, a focus on the ways in which the criminal justice system uh, didn 't live up to its own ostensible values, and uh, essentially got bored with that and uh, began more and more to pursue um, a historical focus in in my scholarship, and one that one that that very quickly uh, entailed uh, an emphasis on labor. Um, and labor repression, which which fit well with my uh, initial interest in the criminal law. And so you mentioned the book I wrote, um, published about um, six or seven years ago, about the Little Steel Strike in 1937. Uh, this book on the wobblies was maybe germinating even before that. Uh, maybe 15 years ago, I think I wrote an, a lengthy article about the IWW and the crime of criminal syndicalism, which was used uh, to great effect um, to persecute the IWW in the 19-teens and 1920s. Uh, and so a few years ago, I decided to revisit that interest. And a few years ago, meaning six or seven years ago, um, having finished the book on Little Steel, I, I decided I would take up this topic, and 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 here I am.
1: So, what are the origins of the industrial workers of the world? This is something that's been on your mind. You've you've dealt with labor history, and labor relations in your research. And while the IWW in my part of the country, the Pacific Northwest, has a long and storied history, many people, I think, even though the union still exists, are unfamiliar. So, tell us a little bit about the origins of the IWW and what the ideology of the union, industrial unionism, revolutionary syndicalism entailed.
2: Yeah, So the IWW uh, was founded in the summer of 1905 in Chicago uh, by um, a broad array of figures. Most of them uh, tied in some way to the labor movement, Uh, some of them, many of them industrial unionists, many of them also with a socialist or anarchist uh, worldview, and many of them veterans of very, very um, violent, uh, sometimes deadly labor struggles of the sort that were pretty common in um, the late 19th, early 20th century. And all of that was imprinted in the organization as it as it took form in the years after 1905. in a great skepticism about The state, uh, a hostility to the state even, um, and an understanding, um, it's pretty widespread in the organization, close to universal at some point, that the state was not in any sense a reliable ally, even in the most contingent way, of uh, organized labor. Um, and radicalism if radicals and unionists were doing what they were supposed to be doing, advancing the interests of working people. Uh, The union also was uh, unabashedly an industrial union committed to organizing industrial workers along industrial lines. Um, In that respect, separating itself from one of the main tendencies in the conventional labor movement as it then existed. Um, uh, Many historians have especially recently, argued, uh, I think pretty persuasively, that it's a mistake to think of the AFL as it existed in 1905 or 1910 or whenever as strictly uh, or overwhelmingly even uh, a craft-based organization that had no interest in industrial organizing of the sort that the IWW um, was interested in. Nevertheless, uh, it was clear then and it remains clear today uh, that the AFL Uh, was not as focused in industrial uh, unionism um, as it could have been and as uh, those who founded the IWW insisted the labor movement should be. So the union that took shape was, again, overtly industrial in its outlook, uh, very hostile to the state, and and above all, uh, opposed to the reign of capitalism, uh, intent on bringing uh, capitalism down. And doing so by an, an interesting, a um, really fascinating method at the core of IWW strategy and ideology was the idea of organizing the entire in, um, industrial working class um, and eventually calling one great strike uh, that would be used to bring down uh, the wage labor system. And by this means, uh, the union Thought that its members thought that uh, they could achieve a a fundamental revolution. They could overthrow capitalism by essentially or largely nonviolent means that wouldn't involve relying on the state, capturing the state in the fashion of many communists. It wouldn't involve the kind of gradualist reformism that... um, that that was common among uh, many socialists in that day, and it wouldn't involve accepting the perpetual or near perpetual reign of capitalism, which was the view of many other unionists at the time. Uh, it really was an extraordinary uh, perspective and an extraordinary program that this organization uh, that this organization had, and it was very much rooted, I think, in the experiences of the people who helped to found it and the world. That they, um, that, that they occupied at that time.
1: So the book's title, Under the Iron Heel, is a reference to a Jack London kind of proto-dystopian, if, if not fully dystopian novel. What was Jack London's relationship to the IWW? He seems uh, to be beloved by members. Um, and what is this Iron Heel that appears so frequently in Wobbly literature. What is the Iron Heel to your average Wobbly in 1915,
2: 1920? Sure. So Jack London has an interesting relationship to the IWW. He early on clearly um, sympathized with the organization uh, and I argue was influenced by the organization. Uh, The book from which the Jack London book, the novel from which I take the title of my book, uh, "The Iron Heel," uh, was published by Jack London just a couple years after, a few years after the founding of the IWW. It tells the story uh, of um, a revolution, a workers' uprising and revolution that was that was violently and decisively put down uh, by what he called the oligarchy, uh, a consortium of powerful capitalists who are eventually aided in their efforts against. Uh, this uprising, by reformist elements, uh, including reformist elements of the labor movement, Uh, you can see how this would be influenced by this plot, would bear the influence of the IWW. And you can also see in turn how members of the IWW would find in the novel, um, in some ways, a story about themselves, um, a, a, a kind of anticipation of their own fate now it's a it's a very grim story um london uses a an interesting plot device where this story is unfolded through the discovery of a manuscript many hundreds of years in the future after finally after finally after hundreds of years of oppression this oligarchy had been itself overcome uh and and um a a socialist world had been created um in its wake. So you can see how this would be in many ways a kind of grim story. And, and one of the things I argue in the book um, is that in a lot of ways the IWW's experience was a confirmation of the pessimism that ran through London's story and that eventually uh, helped drive London himself out of the socialist movement uh, just a, a few months uh, prior to his death in 1916. Uh, at the same time, though, London, I think, was quite inspirational uh, to the IWW, the, the movement, the, the, the union, rather, was famously, um, famously um, insistent on the improvement of its members of the working class in general, put a great emphasis on literacy, on um, on, on education and learning. Its union halls were Um, quite often, not often, were were almost universally uh, well-stocked with books and musical instruments and things like that. And London's writings, not just this novel, The Iron Heel, but many of his writings featured very prominently uh, in the IWW library. Um, The Iron Heel itself uh, kind of functions, if if one's read it, as as a primer in socialist theory um and and so for many wobblies it was and for many many other leftists besides in the early nineteenth early twentieth century the i w w was uh an introduction uh to socialist theory with a healthy dose of uh marxian theory about it and again the book was was very very commonly uh read uh by wobblies sometimes offered as a copies of it offered as a prize to members who sold the most newspapers or uh, organized um signed up uh, uh the most workers or uh, the most new members or, or that kind of thing so it's very central to them and at the same time london never joined the iww never seen any evidence of that um and uh you know didn't participate in 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 their in their strikes and particularly come uh, the latter part of the 19 teens, when the union really began to surge. On the other hand, um, by then he was very near his his early death. Um, really, before the union fully hit its stride in 1917, he had he had by then died uh, and and wasn't around to offer them uh, that kind of support. Uh, but when he died, and I note this in the book, uh, he was he was eulogized uh, by the IWW. Um, and in the course of eulogizing him in its, in its newspapers, uh, the union's writers were um, very appreciative of uh, what he had offered them, and they went so far as to call him an IWW man, Uh, Jack London, an IWW man, and they, uh, they invoked his antipathy to the Socialist Party as a kind of which defined his, his last few months uh, in life as a kind of confirmation of their own by then uh, antipathy to conventional, at least the conventional right wing of the Socialist Party.
1: So you mentioned that the IWW was adamant on improving the lives of its members and by 1917, 1918, there were tens of thousands of Wobblies throughout the United States. Give us a sense before we move into the main legal crux of your book, who made up the Wobblies? So who, who composed the great mass of this very you know, large and transnational union?
2: Yeah, so... In its first ten, nine or ten years of existence, the IWW struggled to find its footing. Uh, It uh, distinguished itself by its ability to um, to take hold of labor disputes that were already beginning to unfold, and um, to manage those disputes, and sometimes did that very successfully, as it did. in, uh, in Lawrence, Massachusetts, the so-called Bread and Roses strike in 1912, and then uh, the following year in Patterson, New Jersey, uh, in uh, in 1913, the Silk strike there. Another, Both of these were textile strikes. Uh, and these were the only examples of the union's ability to insinuate itself uh, in labor disputes, where initially it might have only a few dozen, a few hundred members very large workforces. And next thing you know, it signed up hundreds, thousands, sometimes many thousands, of workers. But this did union was good at this, but this did not prove a recipe for sustained strength and membership numbers. And the union accordingly uh, struggled um, not just to find its footing, but to to remain a viable organization. So by 1914, 1915, amidst the pre-war depression, um, it was an open question whether the IWW uh, would survive at all. Well, by 1916 or so, the union had discovered a different approach to organizing, one that was um, premised on inserting workers into workforces that were, and this is key, uh, often comprised of migratory or transient workers, mostly in the western half of the country or western two-thirds of the country. Um, And organizing these workers... um, Initially, the union's initial success here was primarily among agricultural workers, migratory agriculture workers, particularly in small grain agriculture, or wheat agriculture in uh, the middle of the country, in the, in the Great Plains. Um, its success in organizing these workers not only proved that it had hit upon a viable strategy for building membership, but provided it as well with a flow of income that it could use to fund additional organizing or extended organizing efforts in other somewhat similar industries, similar in the sense that they tended to be comprised of migratory workers, mostly men, uh, in fact, overwhelmingly men, many of them Northern Europeans, many of them citizens or recent immigrants. So in addition to agriculture, Uh, textiles, I mean, textile, I'm sorry, um, timber, Uh, lumber workers in the Pacific Northwest, in the Great Lakes region, Uh, construction workers, oil workers, and dock workers. Um, And so by 1917, on the basis of this new approach to organizing, the union had rescued itself from the risk of irrelevance and was rapidly or had rapidly become uh, the this threatening force um, that warranted the 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 extraordinary repression that it had to contend with by the middle months of that year that had been building since 1916, uh, but by the middle of 1917 um, had really become uh, something quite extraordinary. The union had always had to deal with repression, as did pretty much every uh, uh, American uh, uh, union in this country in the late 19th or late 20th century, if, if it was significant at all in terms of membership, in terms of demands, in terms of the kind of power, it could we almost every union had to deal with repression. This was a time of, 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 of very extensive and, and uh, widespread repression. But, but by 1917, the IWW was dealing with something altogether different than what just about any organization in American history had 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 to contend with. And this was all because of uh, its success in building membership um, beginning in 1916 and into 1917.
1: Well, that's a great transition to speak about the kind of legal repression that uh, Wobblies faced after 1917. One of the more frequent misdemeanor or local Municipal ordinances that was charged, that wobblies were charged with was vagrancy. Why were seemingly so many, at least before the creation of criminal syndicalist laws, why were so many wobblies arrested of vagrancy in various parts of the country? Uh,
2: Yes, the the short answer to that question is because it was so easy to arrest anyone. For Vagrancy I mean vagrancy laws had been in existence for centuries long before the founding of this country um, by the late nineteenth early 20th century they were in common use uh, to control the movements the the behaviors the uh, the antics and actions of uh, transients of all sorts, uh, whether they were working transients migratory workers, whether they were uh, people who didn't work very much, whether they were um, Foreign-born, whether they were native, it it, it didn't matter. Uh, they had come into their own as a means of, of prosecuting, and not just prosecuting, but again controlling people. So the, the 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 reason behind that had to do with the way these laws were drafted. Uh, they often seem kind of ridiculous now, very lengthy statutes uh, that threw in the kitchen sink in identifying the kinds of behaviors or better said, not behavior so much as conditions that would justify being arrested and prosecuted for vagrancy. So there were crimes that prosecuted what's often called a, a state of condition or a being. Just to be a person found in a place where he couldn't give a good account of himself was enough to get prosecuted, as well as things like being a juggler or being a, a, a confidence man, being a um, um, someone who habituates houses of ill repute. And the statutes went on, on and on and on and on uh, in identifying these kinds of states of being that could make you subject to being prosecuted. But the key thing is that merely being unable to give a good account of yourself um, made you subject to being prosecuted. And that was the main way that eventually Wobblies were subject to being Um, arrested and prosecuted under these laws. So without ever having to add any language uh, about the IWW to these statutes or or any language that purported to capture something central to what the IWW supposedly did, these laws were already tailor-made uh, to arrest these folks and prosecute them. And because they were typically misdemeanors, uh, they didn't come with a lot of procedural prerequisites or protections. So usually defendants were prosecuted, uh, were arrested by the local sheriff or or town police uh, and, and brought to trial before a judge or magistrate or police court judge in proceedings that were very, very perfunctory. Uh, it was often a question of, uh, who are you, what's your name, uh, Ask the policeman there or sheriff's deputy, where would you get this person, what was he doing? Uh, he was a wobbly, Your Honor. He's an IWW. I Caught him organizing workers down by the railroad track. That was the end of the trial. Um, the judge would strike the gavel guilty, um, 10 days in jail, 20 days in jail, something like that, with one common exception. Uh, Often these uh, defendants were given the chance to get out of town, Um, sometimes after paying a fine, uh, sometimes if they were IWWs after their literature had been confiscated, if they were organizing, they carried around a lot of literature. Sometimes if they were organizing because they would be then uh, burdened with uh, membership dues after the money was confiscated. Uh, after the court or police took their money, uh, they were given a chance to absent themselves and leave town. Um, that was pretty common. Um, sometimes they were given the opportunity to renounce the IWW as, a, as, a, as, a, um, as an alternative to being put in jail. But this was just perfectly suited um, to persecuting the organization. And by far, it was the most common crime. Uh, charged against IWWs. I I can't. No one can give um, any particular estimate about how often uh, the the um, the charge was used to arrest and prosecute people. But it, clearly, we're talking in the, the the thousands upon thousands of cases. 20,000, I, I don't know. I know that uh, just about everyone who stayed in the union any particular amount of time was eventually. Um, arrested uh, on vagrancy charges. And since you had many tens of thousands of members and hundreds of thousands of people who passed through the IWW were members at one point or another, you can conjecture just how how great the number of people who were prosecuted and often thrown in jail for vagrancy had to be.
1: So before we get into the kind of the main crime that was legislated to Fight against and repress Wobblies, which was criminal syndicalism. Uh, I want to talk about two things. And the first is the kind of conspiracy or belief amongst opponents of the Wobblies that this organization was practicing f- sabotage, uh, and that opponents could point to many areas of wobbly literature and wobbly practice that seemingly legitimated sabotage. So uh, in in wobbly worldview, what was sabotage and how is that different from what the opponents considered the wobblies to be doing?
2: Yeah. So this is one of the, the most interesting questions about this whole story. Um, sabotage, um, became a preoccupation for the IWW in about 1910 into 1911. Um, And it served for the organization a couple of purposes. Um, The main one was to give a name, uh, one central name, to the kind of militancy that by that point the union was making central to its identity and its image. Um, Now, what made it eventually very problematic for the union uh, was the ambiguity of that term. So uh, in one sense, and, and there are still debates about, about how the term sabotage came about. It's obviously a French word uh, and, and originated there and, and, and took on a meaning there, uh, similar to here with the IWW, for denoting a kind of a worker militancy in the workplace. But the key question is, um, what particularly did it mean? Um, did it mean, on the one hand, simply, as the IWW often put it, withholding efficiency, um, not working uh, in the fashion that the bosses wanted you to work, um, and thereby causing them trouble, costing them money, and bringing to bringing pressure to bear on them? Um, soldiering, for instance, doing the job, and we've all had this experience, anyone who's had a job, doing the job as it's it's ostensibly supposed to be done, which isn't the way you're actually supposed to do it, Um, which, again, costs the employer time, and time in a capitalist society in the workplace is money. That's one notion of sabotage. Um, On the other hand, sabotage had a different meaning. And that's the one that most people are familiar with today, uh, so-called destructive sabotage, breaking the machines. And so one theory about the origin of the term of sabotage, not the only one, but one theory about the origin of the term sabotage, the one that, again, most people have heard of if they've heard anything about it, is this idea that the word comes from uh, the practice of throwing things into the machinery, sabot or. Or, or shoes into the machinery to break the, the machinery down. Um, that was another notion of sabotage. The interesting thing about the IWW um, is that it, it promoted both notions of sabotage and its members, to some extent, engaged in both. Um, now, uh, in the grand scheme of things, Um, The first kind of sabotage I mentioned that involved uh, soldiering on the job, uh, working slowly, working inefficiently, that kind of thing, was clearly far, far, far more common than actual destruction in the workplace. And the destructive sabotage that uh, IWW's Engaged in, was usually almost always, if not always, of a relatively minor sort. So, in uh, the timber or lumber industry, sawing logs short was um, a common charge against IWWs, and it it probably did happen in some cases. And in in uh, agriculture, in um, in the harvest. Um, throwing uh, horseshoes or bits of metal or something like that into threshing machines uh, where it could cause some damage, for sure. That would be the whole point of doing that. But probably didn't, uh, wasn't intended to and didn't cause a kind of catastrophic damage uh, that Wobblies were often accused of. Um, So by 1917, uh, even before that, but really by 1917 and the start of the, the America's entry into the First World War, um, this fascination with these dalliances with sabotage had become a real problem for the Union uh, because it was, again, as we said earlier, it was gaining strength it was becoming the kind of threat to the interests of powerful capitalists that it had set out to be when it was formed. And these capitalists, especially out in the West, were, um, were well organized, uh, were quite powerful, and were well situated to use um, the Union's frequent invocations of sabotage in its literature, in speeches, things like that, um, to ground a critique of the organization as not just a danger to their interest as capitalist, but a danger, a physical danger to the public and a danger to the country as it, uh, it, it, it ramped up, it, it organized itself to participate effectively uh, in the First World War. Uh, by then, the union had ordered um, that sabotage essentially not even not, no longer even be mentioned in its literature and in speeches and that sort of thing and uh, censured members who persisted in doing that. Uh, but it was too late. Um, it, it was too late. It was too late to try to draw with the public or with juries or legislatures or whoever the kinds of fine distinctions that we just were talking about Um, because these powerful people had seized the opportunity to define the union and its reputation around the idea that it wasn't just about slowing down on the job or occasionally workers engaging in things like sawing logs short. It was an organization implicated in setting massive forest fires burning down sawmills, burning down uh, warehouses, that sort of thing. And what really hurt the union was that back then, especially, it wasn't an uncommon thing for forest fires to start, for sawmills to burn down, for that sort of thing to happen. There were a lot of industrial accidents back then, and forest fires being the product of all sorts of uh, reckless acts by other people or Acts of God or whatever it may be, every time something like that happened in the West, it was blamed on the IWW, and they had no effective way of defending themselves against the charge. And it really did an enormous amount of damage to the union. Um,
1: yeah, I, I, I'm remembering the statistics you provide. I believe in your footnotes about timber accidents, how. Something like twenty-five percent of timber workers in a given year were paralyzed, you know, uh, uh, you know, forever or or temporarily, or were killed. And so, I mean, these were extraordinarily dangerous industries that were worked in. And so, it makes you know, I mean, these provide uh, with fires or with accidents, lots of ways for opponents of wobblies to pin that on them. Uh, and speaking of these opponents. The great extent of repression of wobblies occurs at a very interesting moment in American history in which progressive politics was at its its pinnacle, its ascendancy. Uh, this was during the Wilson administration. Many of the states that imposed criminal syndical, syndicalism laws were uh, progressive governors and legislatures. Why were progressives a seemingly left of center movement so adamant on Destroying the wobblies, how did they square that with their political commitments?
2: Yeah, I think at the at the at the at the center of that uh, dynamic, and and you're quite right that that progressives they weren't the only people spearheading the oppression of uh, the repression of the IWW, but they were they were critical to it. The Wilson administration, many governors, all the way down to progressive. sheriffs and and police chiefs. They they were very much central to this effort. And I think at the center of their interest in destroying the union, their hostility to the union, was an antipathy to the union as a disreputable, uh, not sufficiently respectable organization and one that challenged their interest and their worldview. Progressives then and now were about reforming the capitalist system, not about destroying it. Uh, progressivism was then and now a primarily middle class movement uh, defined by middle class values. The IWW was not. It was an overtly, transparently, aggressively working class organization that celebrated the working class and often heaped disdain upon the middle classes, the professional classes. Um, these organizations, so or these movements, uh, were not, at the end of the day, natural allies. Right. Now, that's not to say every progressive was against the IWW. Some progressives uh, distinguished themselves by assisting the organization, particularly when it faced uh, this torrent of legal repression, stepping up as legal counsel uh, for the IWW, providing uh, some funds uh, for uh, the purpose of um, of legal representation and to some extent uh, agitating for the repeal of uh, the statutes that were used to, uh, to prosecute the union. But for every progressive who did that, you could find plenty of progressives who uh, were, were active in their hostility uh, to the union, again, from Wilson on uh, downward.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS?
1: nail in the coffin, at least in hindsight for the IWW, was the criminal syndicalism laws that were passed in a variety of state and utilized in, as your book lists, countless court cases against hundreds, if not thousands of wobblies uh, throughout the late teens to early 1920s. Give us a sense of when criminal syndicalism laws began to emerge in state legislatures, and and then how, how they were employed in a trial setting, because you, your 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 book spends in in great detail, an erudite detail, the 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 numerous trials and kind of futility that wobblies and the representation would face when trying to argue against a criminal syndicalism charge.
2: Sure. So. You know, it's no secret among historians that the IWW was the victim of a great deal of uh, of repression, including legal repression. Most of the emphasis, though, has been over the years on um, a, a handful of federal trials uh, that began They began with the number of arrests in uh, the late summer of 1917 and continued through 1919 into 1920. Um, these were premised on the Espionage Act, which was enacted in the, the late spring, early summer of 1917, still in existence today. Um, people like you know uh, Edward Snowden and Julian Assange are being threatened with prosecution on the Espionage Act. The Wobblies were prosecuted under a provision that essentially made it a crime to interfere with the war effort, uh, and they were charged under a conspiracy theory. Uh, which it makes it very easy to prosecute people and convict them. You don't have to prove they actually did interfere with the war effort. You just have to prove that they agreed among themselves to try to do that. Uh, and so um, uh, the better part of 200 uh, members, including a great number of the union's leaders, were convicted, uh, mainly in these three big trials, one in Chicago, uh, one in Sacramento, and another uh, in Kansas City. Um, So these historians who focused on these trials, and I talk about them in the book, are right to do so. The trials were very destructive to the organization, very costly, and they landed most of these people, well over 100 of these defendants in federal prison where they endured terrible conditions, uh, many of them for several years before they eventually got out. What's often been forgotten, what's typically been either forgotten or given short shrift in this this accounting, a recounting of the repression the union endured, uh, are the vagrancy laws, which we talked about a few minutes ago, and the criminal syndicalism laws. Um, The criminal syndicalism laws were first enacted, or the first of these were enacted in the spring of 1917 in Idaho and in uh, Minnesota. Um, Clearly, clearly, the purpose behind them, the overwhelming purpose, was to criminalize the IWW. Uh, In Idaho, the main impetus behind their enactment uh, was the timber industry, uh, dealing with a rise in IWW activism, in organizing success in that state, and in Minnesota, a similar dynamic, not just the timber industry, but also the mining industry. Um, In both of those states, powerful capitalists exerted influence in the legislatures and got these statutes enacted the first statute was enacted in idaho and it was drafted there by a guy named benjamin oppenheim who had been recruited by some timber capitalists and their allies to come up with a statute to put the iww out of business is the way they put it and what this guy oppenheim came up with was a statute that eventually became the template for criminal syndicalism laws in a bunch of other states, and eventually even uh laws that 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 um, that that lived beyond or that i'm sorry that that were enacted long after the i w w came to be or or, or, or remained a, a significant force in other words uh what Oppenheim came up with was a clever way of criminalizing uh just about any radicals you want to criminalize what he did was essentially to make it a crime to advocate industrial or political change by means of, um, of violence, uh, sabotage, or any other criminal activity. And to do so kind of like a conspiracy prosecution without ever proving that the person you're prosecuting engaged in sabotage, engaged in violence, engaged in any kind of criminal activity, or even, and this was the key, advocated it. Because Oppenheim added a provision to the law that allowed you to be prosecuted for being a member of an organization that advocated those things without, again, you yourself as a defendant having advocated it yourself. This was However, he came up with it, an ingenious way of criminalizing the organization. And what it did was allowed IWWs to be prosecuted successfully strictly on the basis of their membership in the union. You didn't have to demonstrate anything, really, except that they belonged to the union. And then the prosecutor would get up there, uh, enter a bunch of IWW literature into evidence, Uh, Literature that often, especially if it were older literature, invoked the concept of sabotage. The union believed in sabotage. This person's a member of the union. Therefore, this person is guilty of criminal syndicalism. And so hundreds of IWWs were arrested. Hundreds were prosecuted. And several hundred were sent to prison. Uh, for violating these criminal syndicalism laws. After Minnesota and uh, Idaho enacted their criminal syndicalism laws, other states followed suit. Eventually, uh, 20 or so states, uh, most of them west of the Mississippi, had criminal syndicalism laws, uh, and they were used pretty aggressively, especially in California, Oregon, uh, Washington, Idaho, uh, to some extent in Kansas, and, um, and a few cases in Montana, a few other cases scattered around uh, the region, but they were very effective because what they did was allow um, local prosecutors to fill a large gap left by the other means of persecution uh, that were available to authorities in that period. The, Federal prosecutions under the Espionage Act and some other federal, similar federal laws were very useful at, in getting at the union's leadership. But a federal prosecution is, as the, um, the, the old saying goes, you know, don't make, make a federal case of it, cumbersome, expensive, uh, high-profile, ultimately relatively difficult amount to to use effectively against an organization. You can do it, but but it takes a lot of resources. It takes a lot to get going. It takes a lot to see people ultimately in prison. Um, At the same time, the vagrancy laws were very easy to deploy against anybody, including IWWs, but they didn't come with the kind of super severe penalties that either the federal prosecutions did or the criminal syndicalism laws. The criminal syndicalism laws were at once very serious. They were f- mostly felony crimes that involved lengthy sentences. The most common sentence was an indeterminate one, one to 14 years in prison, where the parole board or the prison board, whatever it was called in the particular state, would actually set the amount of years you would serve, usually three, four years, something like that. Uh, very serious sentences that could also, unlike the federal prosecutions, be administered relatively easily. Uh, some county prosecutor could decide without getting a permission from the attorney general or the president, anybody else, I'm gonna put these wobblies in prison and do so um, without Um, using a great deal of resources uh, without activating the kinds of things you needed for a successful federal prosecution. So it filled a gap. And in time, in a temporal sense, what these prosecutions did was continue the persecution of the IWW in a serious way, the legal persecution of the IWW long past the end of the Red Scare. So, the federal prosecutions were central to the Red Scare. The Red Scare, depending on how you define it, was, you know, began in 1917 or maybe in 1919, but petered out in 1920. The IWW remained active, especially on uh, the West Coast, well beyond 1920. So, did the criminal syndicalism prosecutions. So, one of the things I argue in the book is that the Persecution of the IWW lasted as long as the IWW remained a viable organization. Central to that was the continued prosecution of IWW's wobblies for violating the criminal syndicalism laws. Um, The last prosecutions were in the mid 1920s in California uh, where the union remained relatively viable. It's in 1923 and, and beyond.
1: So, the criminal syndicalism laws just wreak havoc on the organization in terms of innumerable members going to prison. But how did it also affect the ability for the organization to remain financially solvent and then also affect the ability to acquire new members? It feels like, and you do mention this in the book, that Many people, especially after the Red Scare, when these criminal syndicalism laws were still being prosecuted, were very wary of joining an organization which would seemingly put you in jail quite easily.
2: Yeah. So, you know, we think about criminal law in general as uh, functioning by the logic of deterrence. Um, that and, and what what we call in criminal law general deterrence, uh, among other things, that you don't, when you prosecute someone for robbing a bank, it's with the hope that this sends a, a message, a signal to to people who haven't yet robbed a bank but might be thinking about it, uh, not to think about it. If you do this, this is this is what we'll do to you. We'll we'll, we'll we did to this other guy. We'll do to you. Um, clearly, that was part of the logic of criminal syndicalism prosecutions, vagrancy prosecutions, espionage act prosecutions. And however well that works out in the world in dealing with conventional crimes like robbery or assault or that sort of thing, it clearly worked pretty well in dealing with the IWW. It made, as some wobblies put it, the union's red membership card a kind of ticket to go to prison. Um, Even though only a fraction of the members, people who joined the union, went to prison, everyone understood that by carrying that cart around, you had a pretty good chance you would be run in as a vagrant and put on the rock pile, crack breaking rocks, or uh, or locked up in some fetid county jail for God knows how many days or weeks. They also understood you could go to prison for this, and the people who were prosecuted, especially under the criminal syndicalism laws, were often just um, everyday, run-of-the-mill members, not high up. Members, but um, just you know, rank and file wobblies who got caught up in this and were thrown in, thrown into prison. Uh, again, these laws work very well, I think, in that way. They 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 serve notice that being a member of the union could land you in prison. Um, on top of that, as as you noted, these prosecutions were extraordinarily costly for the union. It had to become, as as some scholars have said, a a legal defense organization. This not only distracted the union from the work of being a union, organizing, leading strikes and protests and that sort of thing, uh, and not only uh, used up resources that could be used more effectively to fund these organizing efforts, it also created conflict within the organization uh, between uh, a faction that believed the criminal the um, criminal defense work was futile anyway, and that this defense work should be abandoned, that it was changing the character of the organization uh, for the worse it was it was it was diminishing the union 's focus on militant organizing, um, turning it again into this criminal defense organization versus those who thought, look, we have to do something for these people who are being thrown into prison, Um, at least those who uh, who don't, and this was true, actually, of many Wobblies, um, freely accept their fate as martyrs. Um, This created another problem for the Union, this this, this factionalism, uh, ultimately, by 1924, 1925, became um, the underpinning of a schism that tore the organization apart. One of the underpinnings of a schism that was also defined by differing views of how the union should be organized, how centralized or decentralized it should be, as well as some residual conflicts regarding the IW, uh, the IWW's relationship to the communist movement. But this business about um, fundraising and criminal defense work was uh, was key. And that was in a context where despite the union's efforts, uh, which were very considerable, despite its fundraising, it raised hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars um, to fund this criminal defense work. Despite all of this, um, most of the people who were charged went to prison. Uh, The trials were, uh, for the most part, show trials. Uh, in which if defendants escaped conviction, it was because jurors didn't want to convict them. It wasn't because, I think, the um, the people who represented these IWWs um, made particularly effective points of law. And that's true even though There's a story to be told about the dedication, the courage, um, the, the abilities of a small cadre of lawyers who at great cost to themselves financially in terms of the risk of physical violence. Some of them were were, were attacked by vigilantes. In terms of the, the risk of criminal prosecution, some of them were themselves prosecuted. Despite those risks, this cadre of lawyers stepped forward to represent these people. Um, but they knew that the law itself offered few opportunities to avoid uh, conviction. And they themselves were often reduced to arguing for a jury nullification, asking the jury, look, are you going to send these these workers to prison uh, on the basis of the kind of evidence that these prosecutors have mustered and on the basis of these laws that we know are unfair laws that are designed uh, with no regard for civil liberties or this country's legacy of freedom of speech and freedom of association. Are you going to send these, these boys, as they often put it, are going to send these boys to prison? That worked, I think, much more frequently than making arguments premised on fine points of law.
1: So you mentioned free speech, free association, um, which are contentious topics today in both public and legal circles. Um, I think to some who may be listening to this and who haven't read the book yet, they may be thinking, wait a minute, this is a guilt by association statute. This is a a seeming violation of the First Amendment to free speech and assembly. Why didn't all of these lawyers for the uh, wobblies make these, you know, Easy cases of of simple First Amendment legis- uh, litigation. What, why, why was it much more complicated uh, on the appellate and Supreme Court and state Supreme Court level to argue for free speech rights for these wobblies at the time?
2: It, it was a difficult argument to make to succeed with because the courts were um, aligned against the wobblies and aligned against the kind of of broad free speech protections that eventually uh, came into being that the courts eventually in this country embraced. So so one theme in the book is just that, the hostility of the appellate courts to the kinds of arguments that these people were making. This was an interesting time in American uh, jurisprudence in the history of the American courts because it was around this time that the courts first had to Kind of confront Foursquare, uh, the constitutionality of the Espionage Act, uh, and eventually of the criminal syndicalism laws, of laws that criminalized um, advocacy and criminalized association. Uh, and the court's reactions, uh, the court's response in these cases was almost universally hostile, um, and it would it would not be until the 1930s, that the courts tentatively suggested they would retreat from uh, this hostility to rights of association and rights of free speech when being exercised by radicals. And even then, um, the courts uh, once again kind of resumed the position they held against the Wobblies in the late 1940s and through most of the 1950s to justify the similar wave of persecution of communists. It was only in 1969 that the Supreme Court finally, finally uh, ruled that the criminal syndicalism laws, even though even, even then the court said were not on their face unconstitutional, they really could not be any longer uh, enforced in the way that they had been enforced against the IWW, uh, by which time they were not being enforced very frequently at all. Uh, so one of the stories in this book is, again, about the hostility of the courts in a way that underscores, um, I think, how relatively recent um, the traditions of free speech and freedom of association we have in this country are, at least insofar as they're protected by the courts. And, and this is, I think, a key point that I hope readers um, ponder um, in light of recent developments and debates about free speech uh, and the First Amendment, how relatively uh, contingent and, um, and, and, and insecure those rights can be. Uh, they 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 certainly cannot be taken for granted, and should not be taken for granted. Um, and the Wobbly story clearly indicates that. I mean, one of the one of the one of the many ironies in the story, as I tell it, is that Earl Warren, um, Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court during the so-called Warren years, a Warren era, uh, when the court with Warren's um, active uh, leadership uh, led what many people, I think rightly call a civil liberties revolution. Uh, it was the Warren court for instance, that not only um, made it, finally made it difficult to prosecute people for criminal syndicalism and similar laws. Um, but likewise, um, expanded the domain of civil liberties more generally in this country. One of the ironies here is that one of Earl Warren's first cases as a district attorney in Alameda County was the prosecution of a man who had been in IWW but was migrating at the time, I think, into the uh, the communist movement for criminal syndicalism. Um, there's a story here about civil liberties and about the struggle to create civil liberties in this country, freedoms of association and free speech. Uh, The Wobblies didn't benefit from that. They were central to that. Um, There's another story here, kind of parallel story, uh, that's been told uh, in more detail by uh, by others uh, about the role of uh, the ACLU. Uh, in defending IWWs and other radicals in this period, Um, and how the the ACLU kind of came into its own as an organization that, at the time, was focused on the defense of radicals, of labor radicals uh, in particular uh, during this period.
1: Yes, I I wrote that down in the margins when I I saw you mention that about the ACLU, its origins are in defending left radicals, and that's I think a provocative statement now, when there's this odd nostalgia amongst a kind of centrist pundit class for that, you know, nonpartisan ACLU that would defend all sorts of Nazis and um, who, you know, wh- whatever kind of mm-hmm. organization you you want to you want to pin. So I thought that was a, a really relevant statement. Um, and speaking of relevancy, a penultimate question is after the as you say the wobblies became virtually irrelevant because of persecution and then the persecution stopped what did radical unionism in and outside of the IWW look like post basically 1930 with the the kind of again irrelevant death of the IWW
2: yeah so by the late 1920s uh the IWW was uh was more abundant. they were few thousand members at the most, down from a high of, who knows, maybe 150,000 in 1917. Um, It wasn't engaged in much in the way of activism anywhere. Um, This was a time of of retrenchment for the whole labor movement. Uh, But it was also a time when the Communist Party, uh, for the first time, really became active in initially organizing its own industrial unions, and then later with the so-called popular front turn in 1935, 19 even beginning a little bit before that, 1935, and embracing this kind of popular front approach, uh, insinuated itself in uh, the reformist uh, currents of unionism led by the CIO in the 1930s. So what I continue was central about this was that um, the kind of vanguard of militant and radical unionism um, shifted from the IWW to the communist movement. What's it, what what's important about that turn is that the communists and the IWW were very different. We talked earlier about the IWW's hostility to the state. It was, uh, in in its conception, in it, at its inception, and it certainly was by 1960, 1970, 1918, uh, very much an anti statist organization. Whatever one makes of that, uh, its kind of syndicalist and anarchist tendencies um, made it hostile not just to the state as it existed in those years. But to the idea that that radicalism and radical worker organizations should uh, build their movements around the state and the power of the state, the communism is quite different. I mean, communism, of course, was hostile to the state as it existed, but not intrinsically to the origin of the state, and particularly the kind of communism that came into being after the triumph of the Bolsheviks and the rise of uh, the Soviet Union and and through the Stalinist years, the 1920s and 1930s and uh, 1940s. Um, And so what this did was change, I think, uh, the political orientation of American militant unionism. Um, No longer did you have the forefront of American militant unionism being built around this anti-statist organization. Instead, it was built around a very different uh, kind of unionism. And of course, when the communists threw in with the New Deal in uh, the mid-1930s, that kind of um, was realized in a reformist embrace of the state uh, that I think, quite obviously, uh, deprive militant unionism in that period of a lot of its radicalism. And you can't really be a radical if you're also making common cause with the New Deal. Um, and that was kind of the story of this. Again, whatever one thinks about that, the nature of that turn, maybe it was for the good. Maybe the IWW's approach was doomed to fail, But it was, however you answer those questions, it was the destruction of the IWW in the uh, the 1920s that made possible that turn uh, because the Wobblies just were no longer a force to be reckoned with in that period. And that opened the door. It cleared the field for uh, Communist Party unionism and Popular Front unionism. Uh, To take hold of the radical and militant impulses in American labor as they resurged in the 1930s. And for the members of the IWW who remain, this was, you know, a source of great frustration and disappointment. I mean, they pulled their hair out in this period watching the success of communist party unionism and later popular front unionism, uh, those who didn't join with that movement. And there were many who did.
1: So a lasting implication of the book then is, is also not only a discussion of free speech rights of assembly of law as a repressive tool in a class society, but then also as I read it, the, legacy of the kind of revolutionary failure and that the the legal repression the IWW and the ascendancy of popular front communist unionism which leaned towards reformism essentially killed off that like vibrant revolutionary leftist spirit in the United States. I mean is that is that a is that a legitimate interpretation of 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 the argument that that the repression of the Wobblies was so severe that leftists could only really be reform going forward?
2: Oh, I think that was a big part of it for sure. Uh, by the 1930s, again, there were, there were a number of Wobblies who um, put aside their anti-statism or renounced it or whatever and became either communist or a CIO unionist or some combination of that. Uh, but many of those people uh, had been scarred by what they endured. And uh, that's not to say that they were less than extraordinarily courageous about it. Uh, I think they retained their personal courage, but they also understood that any movement that had any chance of success might have to make the kinds of compromises that the IWW was unprepared to make. Uh, the message I think was very clear. Now the the flip side of that was, uh, many of these communists or, uh, or, or, uh, CIO reformers who crossed paths with, or had ties to the, 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 the people who remained ardent wobblies were warned by those wobblies that the kind of, um, of forbearance that you're experiencing, uh, from these liberal or progressive elements in the New Deal, uh, it won't last. It's that you made a deal with the devil, and you're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna live to see uh, uh, the consequences of that and and they did. Uh, by the late 1930s, of course, uh, many CIO unions were already purging their, uh, their leaderships and they, to some extent even their rank and file of communists, and that just accelerated uh, into the 1940s, and by the late 40s and through the 1950s, many of these communists were facing the kinds of persecution that um, the Wobblies had faced, and some of them had been wobblies themselves. Uh, Elizabeth Gurley Flynn being uh, the best example of that had had played a very important role in IWW organizing, was nearly prosecuted for violating the Espionage Act in 1917, 1918, kind of avoided that in part because I think she was moving out of the IWW at that time and then in the 1950s went to prison uh, for being um, a communist prosecuted under the Smith Act, uh, the Alien Registration Act of 1940, a.k.a. the Smith Act, a provision of the Smith Act that was modeled after the criminal syndicalism laws that were used to prosecute the IWW.
1: It's all it's all connected. It is all connected. So, uh, Ahmed, I am all out of questions. This has been a wonderfully informative interview. Thank you very much for joining me. One final question before I let you go. Is what future projects that you have planned? You do you plan to write about Wobblies again in the future?
2: Um, not soon. Although I have some other projects I'm I'm working on. Uh, one about um, agrarian radicalism in the 1930s and the, the somewhat similar experience uh, that those were central to that. Um, uh, to that movement endured. Um, and there's also a story yet to be told about the use of criminal syndicalism laws and similar kinds of statutes against communist unionists in the nineteen uh, late 1920s, early 1930s. A, that's a story that's been told well with a particular emphasis on, on certain places, um, but in a way that's left out um, some aspects of that history, and so I may turn uh, to that. So I've got a, a few irons in the fire uh, in the wake of this project,
1: but hopefully no iron heels in the fire. No iron,
2: no, no. <laughs> one, well, one again, always has to expect that these days. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well,
1: uh, Ahmed, Thank you again for joining me on the podcast. It's been a pleasure. You have been listening to New Books in American Studies, a channel of the New Books Network discussing Under the Iron Heel, The Wobblies, and The Capitalist War on Radical Workers, written by Ahmed White, published by University of California Press 2022. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great rest of your day. Goodbye.